Welcome to the next episode of the Austin Bar Association's Council of Firsts. I'm your host, Amanda Ariaga, Austin Bar Association President. This podcast is made possible by the Texas Bar Foundation. Today, I'm honored to introduce Justice Gisela Triana. Justice Triana has been a first in so many of her legal positions. In 2004, she was elected as the first Latina judge to preside over the 200th District Court. In 2018, she became the first Latina Justice of the Third Court of Appeals. She has been recognized as Judge of the Year by the Hispanic Issue Section of the State Bar of Texas, received the Abla Conorgullo Award from Abla, the Hispanic Advocates Business Leaders of Austin, and this past year she received the President's Award at the Hispanic Heritage Luncheon presented by the Hispanic Bar Association of Austin. She has also been recognized as a woman of distinction by the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. Justice Triana has spent her entire career giving back to the legal community and the community at large. She served on the Board of Loyal Referral Services of Austin, the Travis County Child Protective Services Board, the Travis County Bail Bond Board, the Travis County Children's Justice Task Force, and the Travis County Juvenile Board. She has also been a member of the Robert Calvert Inn of Court and founding member of the Barbara Jordan Inn of Court. For the community at large, she served on the board of Austin Recovery, chair of the board for Middle Earth Youth and Family Services, member of the Greater Austin Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and was a founding member of the Hispanic Technology Institute of Austin. She's a mother of five, an accomplished community leader, and someone to be admired. I am proud to introduce Justice Gisela Triana. I don't know if I've embarrassed you enough. Oh my God, am I turning red? <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, I'm competing with my shirt here. So. Well, it's about to get worse. This is sort of an episode of This Is Your Life, and we want to hear all about you. Um, the next most embarrassing thing I have to talk to you about is we have mutual friends that have described you as a literal genius. You are the daughter of Cuban immigrants, and you spoke Spanish only until you were five. You graduated high school at 16, college at 19, and you could have done anything in the world with how smart you are. Why did you want to be a lawyer? Um, well, you're very kind, Amanda. Um you know, I couldn't have done anything that I wanted. I, I definitely know that I could not homeschool my children. I would have not had the patience to do that. And, and I think that they're better for it, and uh, they're very happy that I didn't. But um, I, at a very young age, and I think I consider myself lucky. You know, you can think of it as unlucky because you might think of it as kind of close-minded. Um, but I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer when I was little. And uh, um, I think that came from a couple of, of different places. So, you know, my parents— and I can't tell my story of who I am without talking about my parents. Um, they came from Cuba in 1962. They were 18 years old. And, uh, you know, at that time, if, if you'll remember, Castro had just taken over and had decided that um, Cuba was going to become a communist country. And so <clears throat> they came here without knowing a word of English, um, without any money. Uh, at the time, I think they actually would only let you leave with five different um, uh, uh, clothing, you know, not articles, but actually like five different things that you could use. And um, so they came here without anything. And I grew up hearing about these horrible stories of what had happened to my family in Cuba. Um, my family, you know, was a family of immigrants in Cuba and became then a family of immigrants here in the United States. I have a whole section of my mother's um, family from my father who came from from Lebanon to Cuba. And had gone through all of that. I had uh, on my mother's side, her, on her mother's side, you know, uh, she had a grandfather who came from France to Cuba. Um, and then on my grand, on my father's side, my grandfather had come from Spain to Cuba. So um, in a land of immigrants than communism, you know, they all came to Cuba for a better life than what they had. 
And then, sure enough, here comes um, Castro and communism and everything they had worked so hard for just poofed, vanished. And so I grew up hearing all the stories. My grandfather was, you know, taken one night, you know, in the middle of the night, came knocking on the door. He used to um, <clears throat> be a, a, a pilot for the Air Force in, in Cuba. And um, and actually, I, I think there was an Air Force. I don't even know if they had an Air Force, but um, whether the military, he flew cargo planes. He wasn't a, you know— a jet pilot or anything like that. And they came in the middle of the night, you know, banged on the door and said, we need to take you and didn't give my grandmother or my my dad or his brothers any reason why exactly they were taking him or where they were taking him. They didn't know where he was going. Um, and, um, you know, later on, they released him and, you know, things were okay. But things like that, my great-grandfather lost his he used to be, he was from from Spain, and he was not a man of wealth, but he had worked hard enough to have, you know, a plot of land that he himself would work on. And, you know, I heard the stories, and I actually met him because um, he moved here as well to the United States um, and lived to the ripe old age of 92. And, you know, the stories is he'd be, he was on his, um, on his farm, um, you know, working the oxen, and here come two guys in a in a military jeep and say, "Hey, this is no longer yours." There was the agrarian reform um, in Cuba, and so anybody who had anything bigger than five acres lost it all. Didn't get to keep his house, um, and so he, you know, was already elderly and but didn't really understand what's going on. So he kind of kept on, you know, with the oxen, and then they're like, "You don't understand. This no longer belongs to you. You have to leave." And so, you know, he takes off the reins and um, walks back to the house and, you know, they took it and he had to go live in Havana with his, you know, daughter at that point. Um, And so growing up hearing those stories, there was always this feeling of unfairness in, in, with government and in life. And, and then at the same time, I was going to school here learning about, you know, this great system that we have, this legal system where the government, you know, the Bill of Rights, where the government can't take your life or your property um, or your way to make an income, you know, without due process. Um, they can't put you in jail without specifically telling you why they're putting you in jail and what you're being charged with. They can't take your property and tell you, you know, it belongs to the government now. And I fell in love with that concept. And it seemed to me that, you know, that's the way it should be. And I wanted to make sure that I wanted to be, you know, part of the process that would prevent my family from having to migrate yet another time somewhere else. And so I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And, um, you know, my grandmother got Rest her soul. She used to tell me all the time. I, I wasn't. I think like most lawyers, probably I was very argumentative when I was a child. Still am. Some people would say. Um, and she's like, "Oh, she's going to be, you know." Eva said, "Well, she's going to be a lawyer." And uh, and so I knew. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. That's where my passion lied. And I, I have been the better for it. You know, I've never second doubted that I was born to be a lawyer. And so that's kind of where I I ended up. That's amazing. You know, they say that generational trauma lives within you. And if that premise is true, then it lives within you for the purpose of justice. Yes. You you hold all of your family's prior injustice so that you can serve justice. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was a child um, probably with an overly developed sense of justice. You know, the ones that always got in fights with other people. My parents didn't understand why. You know, why do you have to because if, if a rule didn't make sense or if I felt somebody was being treated unfairly, I would not keep my mind. So I had to share it. 
So you knew you had to be a lawyer, and then you decided to be a judge, but not just any judge. You have been all the judges. (laughs) You have been a municipal court judge, justice of the peace, county court at law judge, district court judge, and now a justice on the third court of appeals. What drew you to public service as a career rather than staying in private practice? You know, growing up, I always wanted to be a trial judge, right? You know, I grew up with Perry Mason as I was older with Boston Legal. And, you know, that just seemed like that's where the action was and that's where you wronged. I mean, you right wronged. Um, And so I always knew that I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Um, As I went through law school and, and as I got older, I knew I wanted to be a prosecutor. You know, I mean, talk about the white hat for sure. Um, and so I started at the Travis County Attorney's Office when I graduated from um, UT Law and loved my job. I mean, loved my job. I was very young. I was 22 at the time and uh, just thought, you know, I was doing, I was wearing the white hat. Um, did that and then did, you know, went to the Secretary of State's office um, the in the elections division, I started thinking that maybe, you know, I might want to have some kind of a political career. Um, and then became, went out on my own and, you know, did what most people do when they go out on their own after uh, people don't necessarily just come, you know, asking for you to be their lawyer. Um, started doing criminal defense work, um, did CPS work, did family work, did kind of anything that, that came in. Um, and then I realized something. One, I love being in the courtroom. I mean, I just loved it. You know, the exhilaration of trying cases is an amazing thing. It's not for everybody, but it definitely was for me. And um, and then I noticed that, you know, maybe it's not necessarily one side wears the white hat all the time. Um, there's people that wear white hats on both sides of the aisle, both in criminal cases, in family cases, in CPS cases, in civil cases, any case. And I, gravi- I saw myself gravitating toward um, big picture like in my family cases, you know, if I was representing a parent, I was really interested in what's the best interest for the children. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always told young lawyers, you can pick your clients. You know, you don't have to just represent somebody um, that you don't agree with or that you think, you know, is a bad actor, um, regardless of needing to pay the bills. And I was very fortunate that I did. And, you know, even with a good client, I could, I would always come to the, okay, but why are we doing this? You know, how is this advancing the ball? Why is this in the best interest of your children? So that person, the other side, you know, bad actor, granted. But how can we protect them? And uh, very much of what a, a judicial role is, right? Um, more than an advocate role. And I realized at a young age that I really thought that I'd be good as a judge and I wanted to try that. And, and then I started at the lowest possible place I could. Because I didn't want to screw anything up. I mean, I thought that that's a big responsibility, um, and I didn't want to feel like I had made a wrong decision and somehow somebody had suffered big consequences. And so I started at municipal court. And I, you know, I mean, they do a lot of, you know, they do the arraignment, they do a lot of important stuff. But in trials, you know, we're dealing with misdemeanors um, and things that people, you're not sending anybody to jail for a long, long time. And did it and loved it. And, you know, got over my fear of I don't know enough and I, you know, how can I pretend the whole imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. which we are so good as Latinas in having, um, and, you know, work my way up. And it was a step at a time. And so I, you know, ran for Justice of the Peace and um, and never looked back. And to me, that's been my calling. Um, 
you know, sometimes I look at, um, we're having our 35th law school reunion in, in a week, as a matter of fact. And I look at some of, uh, of my classmates, you know, who have gone and had great careers and have done wonderful things and have made a lot more money than I have. Um, but I couldn't have, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't have changed a thing. Um, it, it is quite impactful to be able to help people. And that was my main goal in law school, which is I wanted to make sure that people got justice and I wanted to be a part of that. And what better way to do that than by being a judge? In today's episode, we have Judge Laura Livingston, first African-American woman to preside over a district court in Travis County. Judge Livingston has been a true leader for the legal community, dedicating her career to promoting access to justice for all. She's been active on the boards of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation, the Texas Access to Justice Commission, the National Association of IALTA Programs, the Texas Center for the Judiciary, and the Board of Volunteer Legal Services of Central Texas. Judge Livingston has been recognized for her accomplishments at the local, state, and national level. She has received the Spirit of Excellence Award by the American Bar Association Commission on Racial and Ethnic Diversity in the Profession, the Distinguished Service Award from the National Center for State Courts, the Texas Access to Justice Commission Pro Bono Champion Award, the Texas Equal Access to Justice Foundation Harold F. Kleinman Award, the Lone Star Girl Scouts Women of Distinction Award, the Distinguished Lawyer Award by the Austin Bar Foundation, the Pathfinder Award from the Travis County Women Lawyers Association, the AISD Community Service Award, the Lotus Award from the Asian Family Support Services, and the Jurisprudence Award from the Anti-Defamation League of Austin. Judge Livingston has also been widely credited with, with establishing two important initiatives in Travis County, the Travis County Self-Help Center to assist self-represented litigants with legal information, and of course, the establishment of the Travis County Civil and Family Courts Facility. Judge Livingston has accomplished so much in her career and has a strong legacy and has been described as a mentor to many, including previous guest Betty Bayou Torres, Executive Director of the Texas Access to Justice Foundation. I am honored to have with us today Judge Laura Livingston. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, Judge, today is sort of a version of This Is Your Life. So everyone knows about your accomplishments since you became a judge, but I want to talk first about how you became a lawyer. I understand that in college you thought you would either go into journalism or the law. And in theory, both professions let you use your voice to help people. So why did you choose being a lawyer? Well, that's it. I wanted to use my voice to help people who couldn't use theirs in a nutshell. I mean, that was the whole point. Both both litigation and journalism are really about storytelling. And when you're an advocate, your job is to tell your client's story in a way that resonates with the fact finder or the decision maker. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to make a point, And I wanted to help people. And, and both those provisions, I thought, gave me an opportunity to do that. I ultimately settled on being a lawyer because I thought that the way in which I might be able to help the voiceless would be a more powerful contribution, frankly. And so I ultimately chose the law. And I was inspired by some wonderful mentors and some wonderful role models in the legal profession. And so ultimately, I settled on the law. I love the way you said that. Tell a story, make a point, and help people. It's a very concise way to describe what it is that you've done with your career. It's why I became a lawyer in the first place. So you started off as a Reginald Heber Smith Community Lawyer Fellow, a Reggie. You were assigned to the Legal Aid Society of Central Texas in Austin. And now there's a Laura Livingston Fellowship. So why are these fellowships so important for lawyers? Well, the, the fellowship is really significant in a couple of ways. Uh, when I was going to law school, 
first-year students, particularly first-year students of color, had a very difficult time getting the attention of big firm recruiters. The big firms would send recruiters to law schools during, you know, the fall semester, and they would interview folks um, whose grades were no really better or worse than the students of color, and yet the students of color had a very difficult time finding employment for summer jobs, particularly first-year students of color. So the the scholarship, which is really the brainchild of Judge Eric Shepard, his vision was to assist particularly those first-year students of color who might otherwise have been overlooked. And so along with Leslie Dipple and Tony Nelson and then Rudy Mateer and Judge Naranjo joined us, we got together and decided that the way to really make an impact, particularly for those first-year students of color, would be to create this fellowship that would not ignore them, that would recognize their talent, that would see something in them that we thought we could inspire and and mentor and ultimately assist them in becoming the lawyer we knew they could be. And so they spend five weeks at the courthouse working with judges. They spend five weeks in a law firm learning what it's like to be a summer associate. And that 10-week program really gives them um an opportunity that they might not otherwise have. And I'm so proud of the fellowship program. Uh, we started with three students and three law firms, and now we're up to over nine law firms and nine students in the summer. And it has been an absolute labor of love. Our students and fellows have gone on to Fortune 500 companies and governments and big law firms and small law firms and government service. It's been an absolute joy to see these students blossom in the way that they have. And I'm so proud. So maybe the same way that you're part of a class of Reggie's um, and there are decades of Reggie's that still get together. Maybe one day there will be the Livingston's. That's uh, well, I don't know that we'll call them that, <laughs> but <laughs> the there, is, there is a plan, in fact, for a reunion of all of our fellows uh, because we want them to reach back as well to mentor new fellows to reach back and mentor the law students that are coming through law school now to talk about their experience as a fellow, but also their experience in the work world, their experience studying for the bar examination and and passing it and going on to a wonderful career in the law. So uh, we have now enough of a cohort of fellows that we think that we can reach back and grow the fellowship program in significant ways, but also connect students who have already graduated and become lawyers with students who are coming through the fellowship program now. And and that synergy, we hope, will just create a whole new kind of relationship that will be beneficial to both groups. Yeah, and it's really important to have sort of that circular appeal so that folks don't just get a fellowship and then go out into the community, but that they come back and that they're able to keep giving back. I'm all about paying it forward and paying it back. Uh, people helped me. People were role models and mentors for me. I want to be a mentor and a role model for others. I want to help other people be mentors and role models. Uh, and the more we pay it forward and pay it back, the more people that will ultimately benefit from the work that we do. It's a great program. It's a wonderful experience for students. Uh, and as I said, it's an opportunity in many cases for folks to find employment, to spend time and be exposed to what happens at the courthouse, to find employment and be exposed to what goes on in a big law firm as a summer associate, particularly for students who might not have otherwise had that opportunity. So I'm really, really proud of the program. 
Well, that is a wonderful program. And if you need donations, we can put a link in the podcast notes so that folks can keep donating to this at the Austin Bar Foundation. Well, I am so grateful to the Austin Bar Association for the partnership. Uh, truly, it's an art, it's an Austin Bar program, uh, really, and, and the leadership of yourself and other presidents and, of course, your amazing executive director, Delane Ward, uh, all of whom have helped make this program what it is today. So we're all on our fellowship committee. We're all grateful for the support that we receive from the bar. And I'm sure that Leslie Dipple and others will be in touch for uh, firm donations and, and other things, since, of course, judges can't make such a pitch. <laughs> um, but speaking of paying it forward and paying it back, in 1999, you became the first African-American woman to preside over a district court in Travis County. What implications did you think that would have then? And what do they still have today? So uh, when I was sworn in, um, I, I think I said something like, I'm proud to be the first, but I hope I won't be the last. And I still feel that way today. And fortunately, I'm not the last. There have been others that have uh, gone on to hold positions like the one that I held. And I'm so, so proud of uh, the other judges who have held similar positions. Brenda Kennedy, for example, was a judge long before I became a judge, but then she came onto the district bench after I became the first African-American woman to serve in that position. Um, so I might have been the first district judge, but not the first African-American woman judge in Travis County. Judge Harriet Murphy preceded both Brenda Kennedy and I. And so, you know, the legacies that started, the shoulders that we stand on, are meant to provide a foundation for others to stand on our shoulders. Uh, we stood on shoulders. We want people to stand on our shoulders, and we want people to stand on those shoulders, and on and on and on. And so while I'm extremely proud to be able to say that I was the first African-American woman in Travis County to be elected to a district court, I said it then and I'll say it again. I'm so glad I won't be the last. We need people in the community to be reflective of the community. We need judges to be reflective of the community. We need police officers to be reflective of the community. We need teachers to be reflective of the community. We need business leaders to be reflective of the community. And the more we can build on those legacies and continue to provide broad shoulders and stepping stones for people to be uplifted in our community, the better the community will be. So I'm really proud of that, but I'm hoping that I can remain proud of the legacy that will be built as a result of the work that we're doing today. I think you will. This last round of swearing-in ceremonies this year had so many women judges, particularly women of color. So I, when I was chatting with Justice Gisela Triana, we were joking about how we hope one day that this will just be commonplace. Exactly. That we won't we won't think of it as an anomaly or we won't think of it as a milestone It'll just be the reality because it should be the reality, right? That's As right. I said, the bench should be reflective of the community. Every walk of life should be reflective of the community. Every profession should be reflective of the community. And the only way to do that is for us to work hard to make sure that we elect folks that are from the community, who want to give back to the community, who understand the struggles of the community, and who are willing to do the work that it will take to better the community. And as long as we keep doing that, we are going to live in an amazing community. 
So when I think about 1999, it's actually not that long ago, <laughs> even though it was a milestone and it's historic. Are there challenges that you saw or that you faced in 1999 that you think are still around today? You know, it, it's funny because um, in some ways it seems like yesterday. And in some ways it seems like a really long time ago. Uh, lately, I've been thinking about my life before the pandemic and since the pandemic. Um, but back, you know, in the early 2000s, I thought about my life before 1999 and after 2000. I mean, you know, it, there are milestones and significant events in your life that really mark a significant era in, in your life in some ways. And so for me, those are, are some of them the pandemic and, and kind of the transition out of the 1990s into the 2000s, and then, of course, into the 21st century um, as a whole, right? And so it it's in some ways very familiar because it isn't that long ago, and in some ways a lifetime ago. In today's episode, we talked to a guest who was truly a first. Judge Orlinda Naranjo was the first Latina elected to a countywide judicial seat in 1994 when she was elected to lead the Travis County Court at Law No. 2. She served in that role until 2006 when she became the judge of the 419th Judicial District Court. Judge Naranjo has accomplished so much in her career. She has served on the State Commission for Judicial Conduct, the Texas Judicial Council, the first-ever Texas Indigent Defense Task Force, the National Consortium on Racial and Ethnic Fairness in the Courts, and chaired the Juvenile Justice Committee, which eliminated the ticketing of students for Class C misdemeanors. Judge Naranjo is a two-time president of the Robert Calvert Inn of Court, has served as vice president of districts for the National Association of Women Judges, chair of the State Bar of Texas Standing Committee on Jury Service, and is an active member of the Hispanic National Bar Association, Hispanic Bar Association of Austin, Austin Bar Association, Travis County Women Lawyers Association, and the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. She is also the board member of a new organization, Texas Latinx Judges. She is the recipient of the Austin Bar Association's David Walter Community Service Award, the Outstanding Latina Leader Award for Avance, Woman of Distinction Award from the Girl Scout Council of Texas, and the Corazon Award from Con Mi Madre. I am honored to introduce Judge Orlando Naranjo. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. So I think we know a lot about what happened once you became a judge, but I want to start with how did you get there? What was your background like? Why did you, how did you become a lawyer? How did you get to that place where you wanted to do that? Well, I do think that background, your experiences, your life experiences are really important to get where you are, you know, today. You know, I grew up in northern New Mexico in Española. I'm one of seven kids, and uh, my mom and dad were did not have an education. My mom went to the eighth grade, and she was very proud of that, my dad to the sixth grade. Uh, my mom uh, worked as a maid and then as a cook in middle school, to in a middle school, and then my father, heavy equipment operator. And that's what they did. But uh, they really impressed upon us hard work, work ethic, strong work ethics, and uh, also how important education was. And it was an opportunity for each of one of us to get ahead, was through education. Um, I'll always remember my dad would show us his hands, and he says, I don't want you to have hands that look like this, and they were calloused and broken and things, and because of what he did for a living. And he, he really impressed upon us how important education was. And uh, 
then my, you know, I had a heartache at the age of seven, 15. My father passed away of a massive heart attack, in fact, in front of me. And that was um, heartbreaking. And, uh, and, and a year later, I ended up becoming, a year and a half later, becoming a teen parent, marrying uh, my husband, uh, also a young man, teen. Uh, and that marriage didn't last very long. We had a lot of obstacles to overcome, primarily raising a child as teenagers. Um, but uh, we got a divorce. I was divorced by the age of 20, 21. And it's at that time that I decided I was a good student. Uh, I was always college-bound. Again, education was so important. But I had this obstacle that I had created myself, and but in the sense that getting pregnant as a as a young teenager and uh, and raising a child, got divorced and decided that I was going to go back to co- I was going to go to college. I'll always remember because I had a great job at the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratories as a secretary, and everybody was trying to get into the lab, you know, because that was the best pain in the, in northern New Mexico. Um, and I even had a security clearance. And I remember I told my mom, I'm going to quit my job and go to college. And she said, my gosh, you know, in Spanish, you know, mijita, que pasa, you've got the best job. You know, why would you do that? I said, mom, because I don't want to be a secretary all my life. Not that there's, that's a fine profession, but I wanted to get an education. So I went to a small university in, nor- in northern New Mexico, Las Vegas, Highlands University, uh, a state school. I, I, you know, lived in the, you know, uh, family dormitories with my daughter and got a degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. I really had thought I'd become a nurse. And I'll always remember, and I should have gone to nursing school instead of, but anyway, that's what I did. And I'll always remember my physics professor saying to me, why a nurse? Why not a doctor? And to me, that was like, what? Me, a doctor? I can't even imagine that. Uh, and uh, because I didn't have any lawyers, any doctors uh, in my family. Um, anyway, so I ended up uh, applying to medical school and got in. And, uh, you know, after two years of medicine, I said, this is not for me. So I spent a year uh, actually recruiting uh minority students to come to medical school at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. I was, you know, really targeting, you know, science majors, engineer majors, and things like that to try to get them to think about medicine as a career, even though I was leaving it. Uh, But then I applied to law school. It was interesting because I spent a, I would study at the law school. So a lot of my friends became, were lawyers or law students. And so I applied to law school and, and, and was accepted. I got my law degree, and one of the most important days in my life that I can still remember as if, as if it were today was being on that stage as I was getting my diploma, uh, a, a Juris Doctorate, and looking down at my family, which filled a lot of <laughs> rows because I had uncles and aunts and all of that, my whole extended family. We're a big family. And uh, looking down at my mother and tears just rolling down her eyes about how proud she was. And even today, it, it, it brings a lot of tears uh, because I, I think what happens is that people, you make 
you have obstacles, you may create them, and you overcome them. Now, remember that we tend to think that our teen parents cannot overcome the obstacle of being a single parent or uh, raising a child, but you can. And and I did. And it, it was a wonderful day. I can always remember that. And my daughter was there. And as a single parent in college and law school and medical school, I was a single parent raising her. And all those financial struggles. I mean, I, that's what I tell kids that I speak to is to say, look, you may not have even the support of your family. I was very fortunate that I did. And uh, my mom couldn't give me money. She always, I, she was so proud that she could help me with $20 or she would always commit to buying my daughter a winter coat every other year. She had to always get it bigger so it could last her two years. And uh, my family would help me as much as they could financially. But I took out loans, grants. I knew any organization that was giving out a scholarship, I would apply for it. Uh, and that's the way I put myself through school and, and came out with some college debt, not like what the kids are coming out with today at all. But, uh, you know, and I graduated from law school and had worked for a law firm and they offered me a job and I took it and and I uh, was very happy there in New Mexico working for the law firm of Butthorn and Bear, which is a very well-respected um, mid-sized law firm in Albuquerque. Do you think that your background um, and all the support you received is why mentorship remains so important for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know how important it makes to have a, a champion, so a cheerleader helping you. And remember that we, you know, there are so many kids that say, I can never, I could never go to law school. I mm -hmm. could never be a lawyer. I don't know a lawyer. I don't even know what that is. I mean, from the perspective of what does that day in the life of a lawyer look like or the day in the life of a judge look like? Uh, do they look like me, you know? And I always try to impress how important it is to know that they can make it, that they can do it. They may have obstacles. I'm not saying it's easy. And they'll have to work hard, but they have to have a commitment. They have to have a goal, and they have to have a vision. Mm -hmm. And that vision, that's why I like, and I always try to speak to them. I've learned Espanol, you know, so I always try to let them know that um, I do this little routine. Like I say, okay, how many of you, you know, are raised by, uh, you know, a single parent? So that, you know, either because they're divorced, you know, they're never married, or they're passed away, and we raise our hand, you know, so we— start sharing our commonalities because we have so much in common. How many of you spoke uh, uh, English was your second language? We raise our hands, you know, and, and so that they understand that. How many of you, your parents do not have a formal education? Raise our hands. So again, we're seeing the commonalities, especially as, as I get older, you know, they don't see how can they have anything in common with a, a judge, much as a Latina who's much older than them, but uh, anyway, um, I always try to raise the, identify the commonalities that we have. 